So the lecture you're about to hear is from Psychology and Biology 3506, Neuropharmacology from Algoma University. I, I'm the instructor, Dave Broadbeck, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck. So um, I hope you like it. Uh, I hope you get something out of it. Fr frankly, I only hope you get something out of it if you're one of my students. If you're not, that's great. And I'm glad you're listening in on a university class you're not taking. Fine. Um, but yeah. Uh, so without further ado, let's listen to a little intro of a song and then a lecture. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. All right. So I, I don't know how we're supposed to see, but I don't think anybody gives a shit. Oh, I know you all care. I mean the people that run this place. Anyway... I am really happy. So, let's talk about common dependent variables. And I can't figure out the lights to save my life. So, if, if somebody can, that'd be great. But I can't. So, the lights are over there. Feel free to go, go crazy if you want. But I mean, there's print on them, but I can't actually read the print. No, there's no print. I don't know. It's random. So. So, what are some common dependent variables where we ended up last time? Uh, well, arousal level, which we would measure with EEG. Okay, you can see, you can, go ahead. You can, you can try some things. I'm excited by the whole prospect of the various, this is almost like, see the thing is right now, this is the literally almost the worst thing right at the front. So yeah, arousal level, measure that with EEG, uh, which, you know, like a lie detector test, basically. So you use also some different, there we go. That's not bad at all. I have no idea what I have. <laughs> I mean, the ones at the side are no good, but this one's okay. Uh, perceptual things are good. So things like flicker fusion, what is flicker fusion? You know, um, number of frames per second, you see something at. Right? Changes how clear it is, correct? Think about this for video games or TVs or Well, one of the, so what, what that's called is flicker fusion, because flickering stimuli get fused into one perceived as one stimulus. Make sense? <laughs> so your flicker fusion rate actually drops, maybe, or maybe goes up depending on the drug you take. Like THC lowers your flicker fusion rate. Things that are in their HD look like they're in 4K. You ever had that experience? Boy, that's been great. Oh, I'm stoned. Um, that's what it is. Or thresholds. When do you detect a light being on? When do you detect a sound? Right? So, maybe a drug affects one of those things. The timing is great. Uh, timing, we don't tend to think of timing being a sense, sensory perceptual thing, but it really is. Because if I say to you, help me when 10 seconds is up, you have to, and don't count yourself, help me when 10 seconds is up. That's a perceptual thing. You're measuring something, you're measuring determinants. And we use that a lot. I mean, amphetamines speed up your internal clock. Amphetamines speed up your internal clock. Opiates slow down your turn. I mean, you're, and I don't mean you're the one for circadian rhythms of sleep and wakefulness. I mean for 
How long did you feel 10 seconds is last? How long have you been watching TV? Now you may find this if you're under the influence of some drug. You may find you look at the clock and go, what? What do you mean it's 3-3? Three, three? I thought I missed. Like I fell asleep last night watching TV. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning going, I'm not saying that sleep was drug induced, but I'm not saying it wasn't. Uh, not completely. Not completely. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, see, there's all kinds of perceptual things that happen. Oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, THC, for example, doesn't increase the speed of your clock. What it does is it actually makes the air move bigger. It just makes it, it increases as much as it increases. You make more mistakes, and they're bigger. But you're actually, your overall mean accuracy is the same. Yeah, question the fact. Your time, you're, you're, yeah, you feel like you're getting into a time warp, that's right. But what happens is, you'll find that you overestimate as much as you underestimate. So you'll go, I thought it was 2.30 to 3.30, you'll also say, I thought it was 3.30, but it was 2.30. Like, you'll be off by just as much both ways. Yeah, it's wild. So it actually messes with, geez, how tough to She says, yeah, just a little So I'll give it just a little technical, not completely technical. So the way your timing system probably works is that there's a thing called an accumulator, and it keeps track of how many bits of time go into it. So it's like a bucket, and it fills up with time, and then you measure how much is in the bucket. And you compare that to a, uh, a standard. So you give a standard of this is, this is 10 minutes, and you compare the bucket to 10 minutes, you say, is the bucket at 10 minutes? Then it's 10 minutes. Okay? You don't know you're doing this. This is just something that happens. This also, so what happens is your ability to read, the, the, your accuracy of reading your bucket, of reading the accumulator, is not as good as it was when you're straight, except that it's as, it overestimates as much as it underestimates. Whereas with amphetamine, it just speeds up the bucket. It just gets keep getting filled. And with opiates, it's slow. It slows it down. So yeah, so uh, cannabinoids do that. They, they widen everything out, which is kind of wild uh, compared to a lot of other drugs that don't work like that. Alcohol slows things down as well. A lot of cognitive stuff we could look at. Uh, memory, obviously. Uh, a lot of drugs, you, if you learn on the drug, you remember better on the drug than you do remember off the drug. You ever had any experience? Study high, take the test high. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, study high, take the test high. You know what works even better? Study not high, take the test not high. That works way better. Though study, I mean, <coughs> if it's a list of words, it's probably true though, study high. I mean, I have a friend who writes high. And edits straight. Because he says, I, can, I think best when I'm stoned, so he writes. And this is a well respected neuroscientist who I'm not going to name because where he lives, it's not legal to do that. Uh, if he was in a different state, a couple states over, he'd be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, that's basically what's happening is that things get set up, things slow down. That's what these drugs do. They don't just affect, you know, hey, it's fun. Hey, oh boy, I'm going to eat some chocolate covered almonds. Uh, <laughs> 
just again describing last night. But uh, what they <laughs> they also affect all kinds of other things that we're not really as intimately aware of. What are we doing here? What are we doing? All right. Oh, right. I have vigilance there too. One of the things you'll measure with vigilance. What is vigilance? Well, the way what we might what we used to do is dials. You just take a dial, like a like a knob, and you'd say you play a sound, and you'd say, okay, you want this sound to stay like this, like that that sound, and then it starts to move up, and you have to move the dial, or move it. Or we would use oh, we got a, a cursor moving around, and you've got to take your medicine, get it back into the box, get it back into the box, get it back into the box. Just something you have to repetitively do to do to keep something on a task. It's called vigilance. It's used, for example, if you were testing, oh, a lot, a lot, a lot of, when they're uh, validating a new instrument sections in airplanes, they use vigilance tests. They use, these are human factors experiments. They just want to see, can people read a whole bunch of gauges at once? Interestingly, if you're a trained pilot, on a very small amount of cocaine, you fly better than you do on no cocaine. If you're a cocaine user, you know what's best? If your pilot doesn't use cocaine. That's even. But yeah, oh, that's right. I remember. Study high, that's right. You said study high, take test high. Sure, but you do better. Hold straight. But you will do better if you study high. Okay. Sorry. So if you studied high, you won't remember as much when you're straight. You know, have you ever had this experience? You do a thing, probably not a good thing, maybe an embarrassing thing, and you forget about the thing. Your friends tell you about the thing the next day. Remember last night when you X, Y, Z? You know, I have no memory of that. Then the next night, you do the same drug again. You go, oh, now I remember. <laughs> I'm an idiot. So that's a pretty common thing. That's like the same reason you should, if you study drinking coffee, you take coffee in your test. That's your state dependent learning. You get those effects here. We're here all about those throughout the course. Um, motor tasks is great, the pursuit rotor task. You get a rotor, so it looks something like this. So it's something like a, one of these Apple Pencil kind of things, except it'd be on an angle, and then you've got a spinning uh, stimulus. You've got to keep your thing on it. It's not super, that's easy when it's going that fast. When it starts to go like 45 RPM, it's hard. Uh, we used to use those a lot, not so much anymore. I broke one once. I didn't tell anybody, it was in the second year human learning class. I broke it and just went, and walked away. I probably owe Western like 300 bucks for that. Tapping rate, this is another timing thing. I would like you to tap every so many seconds or something like that. That's another sort of timing thing. Uh, Non-human stuff, timing again, learning and memory experiments, avoidance. So do, you have, can, do animals avoid a certain part of the cage or something? If it's a different color and there's a different drug experience there. Uh, so if you give rats morphine, put them in a black cage, they start associating black cages with you. And of course, half of them you put in a black cage, and half of them you put in a white cage. Yes, we know how to run control groups, thank you. Uh, the Pollock test, what's the Pollock test? That sounds all cute until I tell you what it is. So, 
You take a rat and you put them on a hot plate. Again, I didn't say it was nice. Now, it's not so hot that you cook the rat. Because first of all, I don't think they're good eating. But secondly, you don't want to hurt your subjects. You don't get good data from animals that are in distress. Like Even if you're, you don't care about the animals at all, you don't get good data from animals that are in distress. So you don't want to make them feel any more pain than they have to. So you put the hot plate up to maybe 52 degrees Celsius. That's as hot as a car gets in the summer on the outside. And in fact, oh, cars get a lot hotter than that. So if you think about on a warm day, not a super hot day, like it's about say 30, and you touch the inside of the car, it gets hot. So you turn the hot plate up, you have the, the rat kicks up, and as soon as he licks his paw, the test is over because you, and you count how long it took. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of pain. And then you give him a painkiller, and you see how long it takes him to But it's not enough that you're going to hurt him. So you know, if he sat on the thing for like a minute, it's not going to cook his feet. It's just a little unpleasant. Okay, so there's no reason to start any <coughs> protest groups, is what I'm saying. There's no reason to do anything like that. There's no reason to call PETA, because I don't know that they actually are literate. So I don't think they get anything. But there's no reason to get worried, is what I'm saying. It's a way to test something, and it's, it's, the rats don't get hurt, but it's not pleasant for them. And they ah, like that, you know, like if you stub, if you hurt yourself and you suck on your thumb, something like that, that could kind of So, drug effects can be conditioned, and in fact, you'll find that most of this course is about that. Uh, so, classical condition. Let's, a quick little primer on classical condition. You've got a conditioned stimulus and an unconditioned stimulus. Unconditioned stimulus leads to an unconditioned response. So if you think of Pavlov, the unconditioned stimulus is meat powder being put into the dog's mouth. The unconditioned response is salivation. The dog salivates and you collect that's a lot. And you, you probably don't want to know how Pavlov collected that if you worry about the pollen testing. So the thing is, Pavlov paired, a lot of people think it's a bell, it's not a bell, it's a buzzer, as I said in that little quiz that I keep forgetting to bring, but you know, probably want back. Buzzer, food, buzzer, food. This, in fact, he discovered it accidentally, right? Buzzer got paired with food a bunch of times because he was automatically feeding the animals and it was like a noise. And then it, it, it ran out of food, but he kept getting salivation. What? The animals have paired the conditioned stimulus with the unconditioned stimulus. That now leads to an unconditioned response. Sorry, to a conditioned response. And the conditioned response very often is similar to the unconditioned response. In this case, it's exactly the same. The conditioned response to, to, to just the buzzer is salivation. And you can prove this to yourself. Just think of your favorite food, and you'll notice you'll start to salivate. You don't need that saliva right now, but it happens. That saliva is for digestion. That's what saliva is for. That, you know, just spitting, I guess. I don't know. So the weird thing about drug effects is that a lot of times the conditioned response is different than the unconditioned response. So they're not always the same. In fact, if the drug affects the peripheral nervous system, so everything outside your brain, your spinal column, and your cerebellum, um, you often get the opposite effect. So 
In that case, you get what's called preparatory conditioning. Preparatory. It's preparing you for it. It's preparing you for it. So that's why it's called preparatory. So what happens here is that animals, including us, end up pairing, like the world pairs things together, so we have these associative learning, it just happens. Every animal that's ever been tested shows how that's including like nematodes that have 302 neurons. All animals show this. And the mechanism's the same in all of us, which is You feel different drinking at a bar than you do at your house. Because when you look in the face like that, you feel it, right? No, this is nice. Because I'm looking around, I just noticed your, your face. Now I'm pointing at you like you're just like, drunk. But <laughs> so am I. Uh, but I can see the looks on a lot of your faces that you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because if you're sitting at home and you're excited, like you know when you want to kind of like a uh, little pregame before you go out? So you have eight or nine drinks before you go to a bar. Maybe not eight or nine, eight or four, two, I don't know about you, but you like what it's but um, my name is huge. So, but it's a different feeling when you have drink when you're drinking at home versus when you're drinking with your friends. In fact, you might even feel more drunk. In fact, you do. You can get people to feel drunk when they have had no alcohol. You don't believe that. You look like this. You know what it is? It's a great experiment. What you do is people come into the lab and you say, we're testing the effects of alcohol on your reaction time or something. So what we do is we give half you alcohol and half you we don't give alcohol. And you're going to say, yeah, I know I didn't have alcohol. How can I hide that? It's a possibility. So I'm going to give you a drink. Either way, you get a glass with that thing. It's either going to have three shots of vodka in it or none. Any thoughts how you would mask the flavor of alcohol? What about a whole lot of peppermint? Okay, is that what you going to say? Yeah, uh, let's say we could um, do the uh, cherry on top and the uh, orange flavor. No, you, you would make it look like a drink. That's right. You put a cherry, the whole thing. You would put ice. You would put all the little garnishes. Were you going to say something, Jamie? I think you said last class that it was the soda, water, with the pepper. It's soda, water, and peppermint. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. That's right. That's what I said 26 and 6, right? So it's soda, water, and peppermint. And I put so much peppermint in there, you can't tell. And you think, no, you really can't. Because... People will go to these experiments. Uh, when I was a postdoc, there was a friend of mine, Penny, and she was a grad student, and she was doing these experiments, and people would sign up, and we all knew what these experiments were. So at 10 o'clock in the morning, you'd go and you'd pound back drinks, and then you'd do a reaction time thing, and then you'd go blow a breathalyzer. Except that half of the people, she'd say, you were in the control group, you can leave. And people would go, oh, okay. Like they were drunk, and then they weren't. Whereas the other people who had had to give up their car keys and everything had to sit and watch videos, like sit and watch DVDs for a couple of hours until they blew the little bit and they were allowed to leave. But 
And you could always see like people with like, you ever seen an, you know, like an afternoon hangover's like if you've been drinking in the morning? Good, at least some of you know it. You're not completely wasted your young part of your lives. Um, you can see graduate students walking around the apartment in like, the summer like this. You know, you want a panties experiments? Yeah. I got a hangover and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you know? So you can condition this stuff. Um, Campbell and Seaton in 1973 looked at something called behavioral tolerance. And they did this by pairing. Okay, back up. So what's DRL? Well, it sounds like the name of some kind of courier. But what it actually is, is differential reinforcement for low rates of responding. Differential reinforcement for low rates of responding. This is a very hard thing to get an animal to do because what you're actually asking the animal to do is think about in a classic kind of an opera condition experiment, you push the button, if you're a rat, you push the little bar and you get some food. Push the bar again, you get some food. That's easy, right? So, and the way all of our minds work, rats or humans, is push the bar more, get more food. No, actually a DRL schedule says push the bar once every 10 seconds. More than once every 10 seconds, you'll get your food. That's really hard to do. It'd be hard for you to learn without me telling you. Because if I said to you, here's a thing, I'm going to put a bar of button in front of you, you push the button, and you get, it immediately says, winner. And you did it again, wait, loser. <laughs> then you have to wait 10 seconds, it goes, winner. And you try to go, loser. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to figure out that it's, it, you've got to wait 10 seconds. This is really hard for like pigeons and rats to learn. Because the winner loser thing there is, oh, I get to eat. It's very difficult when there's something biologically relevant to go, oh, I gotta do less of something to get more of something. The, world, the universe doesn't work like that. It's a hard thing for animals to learn. Hard thing for all of us to learn. It's really hard to learn on amphetamines. Because you don't wanna behave. So what these guys did is they had two groups. Well, they had, there's like a million freaking control groups. But they had a group that didn't get amphetamine and they learned DRL. And then they, sorry, they, a group that hadn't had any amphetamine experience, then they tried to teach them DRL on amphetamine, they could never really learn it. A group that had amphetamine experience of rats, and then you give them, you keep giving them amphetamine, and they try to teach you a DRL schedule, they could learn it. That's called behavioral tolerance. They've learned how to behave normally on the drug. Does that make sense? So what behavioral tolerance is usually is simply conditioning. It's simply learning how to exist on a drug. Think about the first time if you are someone who not only drinks alcohol but also smokes pot. Cracks, wacky back, weed, the devil's lettuce, what's the other one? <coughs> reefer, I like reefer. I want that one to come back in grass. If you've done both of those things, you know that it's a qualitatively different experience. They're related, but they're different. Think about the first time that you had cannabis, because that's usually the first, later than the first time you had alcohol. You're expecting an alcohol thing, and you go, "This isn't really. This is. This not really affecting me. It's not really. This is not really affecting me. This is not really." And you start doing something weird, like repeating. This is not really affecting me. 
isn't affecting me at all, we should probably eat all the corn in the house. Like, you say something weird like that. Then you realize, oh, that's kind of fun. Okay, now I get it. And then, so you've learned how to behave on that drug. You can, you got this also, maybe the first time you had alcohol, and it's enough that you got drunk. And how just completely ridiculous you were maybe 14, 12, 17, maybe last week, doesn't matter when. Think about how stupid you, stupidly you behaved. And you had like four beers. And you were like, <laughs> I have four beers as an eye opener in the morning. It's <laughs> but the thing is, you can learn to behave on drugs. How, many, how often does it happen? You've got a friend or a relative, you find out that somebody's drug problem. Oh, you know, hey, Uncle Steve is away at a place getting some treatment. Oh, for what? Well, he's an alcoholic. Oh, I didn't know. Weird looks at you like, what? Well, you always know, seem so normal. I guess you never smell Uncle Steve's breath. But point is, you can learn to exist on a drug. It's called behavioral tolerance. And you can even learn to do something that's really hard while you're on amphetamines if you're a rat. Questions on this stuff before we move on to the next group? Yes, John. So what is, uh, so different, so DRL is oh, yeah. differential reinforcement for low weights? Yeah, that's right. Let's, let us should probably write that in there. So differential reinforcement for low rates of responding, or DRL. That really helps, eh, because you can't even read that in my handwriting garbage. So it's just this, okay? So just do that. Uh, that is useful, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's differential reinforcement for low rates of responding, and it's, it's notoriously a difficult, it's difficult for anybody to do. If I told you it, respond only once every 10 seconds, it's trivial, but you can't just look around and go, okay, this is what I want you to do. And believe me, I've, having worked with all kinds of different species of animals, I have literally looked at all of my subjects and said, could you please today, just today, what I'm asking is that you get extracted by this guy, and then you pick that. Could you do that? Because that's going to make you discover a thing. <laughs> and then people come in, what are you doing? I'm just talking to my chickadees. That's normal, right? <laughs> I've had one student like looking at pigeons saying, why are you so stupid? The rest of your friends have learned how to do this. They've all learned you pick at the cars, not at the cats. Yes, I've taught pigeons to peck at pictures of cars and cats. For good reason, <laughs> for science, because I'd like to thank your tax dollars for that, by the way. Okay, that and Okay, so now, now we're going to do, this is basically all of 2606 that's useful for this course. That's not true. It's a lot of stuff from 2606 that's useful for this course anyway. So basically, like I said, brain synapses and neurotransmitters. Sir, sorry, I have two questions. Oh, please, sorry. I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. Uh, one of my questions was, you said that all animals show a certain thing. I was wondering what the term for that was again. Oh, classic condition. Okay. And, um, 
Oh, yeah, I totally lost myself. I find someone to the story. Uh, yeah, that's good. So what happened, let's say when, if you take a rat and you give him morphine, and you put him always, he always gets his morphine in a white cage, like a white box. He will have his, he will have a conditioned response to the white box, which actually prepares him to metabolize the opiate. So he actually gets some tolerance from that. He needs, then he needs more to get the same effect. And we can do that probably with all Now, so every time you put him in the white room, and I'm so tempted to sing a song that you would know called The White Room by Green. Uh, <laughs> it's horrible that it's get that my brain works. So then we take over to put him in the black. Now we just have the preparation you can get an overdose. Now this actually happened in real life to humans uh, who came after the Vietnam War. So when American uh, and also Australian soldiers came over from the Vietnam War, um, there was a lot of drugs going around. So and one of the ways to get to escape was drugs, right? So people would take heroin for real. Uh, and the amount they needed when they were in Vietnam was a certain amount, but they weren't in Vietnam anymore. They're back, let's say, or somewhere in the States, and Vietnam vets weren't really treated very well. So people were very upset. You know, so some guy goes and scores some heroin, because that worked back when he was in Vietnam, and he was killing, and he kills himself. Not on purpose. He's getting the same amount that he would normally have in Vietnam, but he doesn't have the preparation. His body isn't ready, because he's not sitting in his dugout at a fire base in Vietnam. He's sitting in a shitty hotel in San Francisco in nineteen seventy. And it's called the shooting gallery for uh, because you shoot up in a place called the shooting gallery. And that still happens a bit today. It's a little, you hear less about it because people kind of take the stuff in the same place. This was happening because they, were, they learned the drug in an entire, such an entirely different country, culture, everything was different. Does so, yeah. that help? Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. So the book is drug called Drugs and Behavior. <laughs> so I guess we'll care about the nervous system a bit. Uh, there's two types of cells. We're not going to worry about glial cells. The last time I'll talk about glial cells in this course is right now. Uh, somebody else might, but they aren't going to be that interesting with us. The most important ones for our purposes are, of course, neurons. They do the communicating. Right? They're mine. They're yours. Yeah, okay. Neuro, neuron diagram, which is still nice and dim so nobody can see it. The impulse goes down, the dendrite through the cell body to the axon. I think you all know it doesn't actually always go like that. For our purposes, that's good enough, thanks. For this course, that's close enough for rock and roll. I mean, you know there's seven kinds of synapses, and you know that there's all, you know, all these extra, let's not worry about this right now, okay? Not a big deal for us. All right, so, and let's try to always, some of these slides are slides from 2606, right? So, uh, so some neuron facts here. You have one axon, many dendrites, information, Excuse me, it tends to go dendrite cell body axon. Axons transmit information, dendrites receive information. 
Um, dendrites grow and change, and they make connections to new axons, which is probably how learning works. I mean, it's probably more than what works. No one really knows exactly how these things, things like learning work, but that's close. Okay. So the neuron is electrochemical, the way it communicates. It rests at negative 70 millivolts. So, and this is stuff that we talked about in 2606 last term. So we selectively allow certain ions in, and we pump other ions out in a 3 to 2 ratio, we end up with a negative 70 charge, right? So you have a negative 70 charge across the cell membrane, negative 70 millivolts. And with stimulation, sodium is allowed in. So with stimulation, you get sodium allowed in, and the neuron fires. Because the, once it hits about minus 50 or so, minus 55, it depolarizes and you get the action potential. So once you get the action potential, cell fires, changes in one area of the neuron lead to changes in another. So if you've got like, So that's, that's part of a dendrite. Very good diagram, but let's pretend. So we get a whole bunch of sodium coming in. Sodium is a positive ion. So we get all these positives. And that's going to then lead to then this part having a bunch of sodium. It basically flows down. Etc. 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 So you get changes in one area of a neuron, lead to changes in another area of a neuron. <coughs> and it's an electrochemical thing, which I just think is super freaking cool. So the action potential when it fires uh, is affected by a few things. Um, resistance is affected by myelin. Uh, Sorry, resistance and myelin affect the transmission rate. You can get less resistance with a really big axon. The really big neurons don't have a lot of, uh, don't have to be myelinated necessarily to be fast. There are, there are neurons in the human body that have axons that are like 30 centimeters long, which I find gross. I don't know why I find it gross, I just do. It bothers me, it shouldn't. It allows me to walk, so it really shouldn't bother me, but I find it weird. It's just a little weird to think that you know, I got cells that are. It's. Does that bother anybody else? It's bothering yes. you too. Okay, so it's us too. Disgusting. You find you find weird too. Okay, good. So it's not just. Uh, John thinks it's fine. Okay. So we got a few voices here saying it's gross. Some say it's fine. I think it's weird. Mixed results. It's re yeah exactly. The results though are we can walk. So what the hell? Um, normally you have that resting potential because the uh, process collective transport pumps out uh, sodium and pulls in potassium in a 3 to 2 ratio, so you get a negative charge across the cell. And this is all stuff we talked about in 2606 last year. Yeah. Will it be less resistance? Is it only the length, or is it also the diameter? Oh, yes, the diameter also. Yeah. 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 Sure. Hmm. Okay. So 
the way this works is there's this thing called the sodium potassium pump with this light. This, this, please, 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 please. No, that's not gonna, too bad. Oh well, this nice thing that isn't animating, there's some sodiums, there's some potassium. You can't even see it anyway, it's so dark in here. Who cares, it could be anything. It could be a picture of Evil Knievel jumping the Snake River Canyon. Nothing, nobody, of course not, but half of them is 10. Um, and you missed. So why do we do this? Like, why do we have a system where, like, your neurons are like drawn bows, eh? Like, they're all, even when they're not firing, they're not off, they're just ready to go. It's like a bow being drawn. Why is that? Uh, faster reactions, maybe. Maybe easier encoding, I don't think I buy that. I, I, the reactions I bought, because, this is just because this analogy is the only reason I buy this, because firing an arrow like that works better than just pushing it. <laughs> but I, that's me taking an analogy too seriously, I think. So I, I don't really know if that's a good reason for it or not, but it does work like this, and that's great. Um, so we get the, uh, uh, when an action potential happens, basically sodium rushes in, potassium goes out, and then it spreads to the next part of the neuron, et cetera. And then you can see why there's a refractory period afterwards because all the so all the potassium, or sorry, all the sodium has to be pumped out of the neuron. This happens very quickly. There's not like one sodium potassium pump per neuron. There's tens and thousands of them. So things at microscopic scales, we have really tough time imagining because you know we don't live at that scale. So it's sort of reverse later. Okay. Other questions so far? Yeah. So, um, what? So, after the action potential happens, yeah. does any um, go in? Well, no. What happens is, after the action potential happens, it's kind of like after your basement's flooded and you have to pump all the water out. Oh, yeah. Weird analogy. But it's the same idea. All this sodium's coming in, it now has to be pumped out. So, that's what happens. Sure. And once that's all pumped out, and you get back to that 3 to 2 ratio of negative 70, then it can fire again if it wants to. Well, want is the wrong word, but it, if, it, if it gets fired. Okay. So the thing about neurotransmitters is they're a pretty recent discovery. Well, 100 years ago. Uh, many of you heard of the, the, the Otto Levy experiment in 1921, where he had a heart of a frog so he, he's got this frog pinned out on a board. This is not ethical. We wouldn't do it this way today. Uh, you wouldn't have a live frog cut open and pinned out on a board. That's not a thing we do. So you take the frog, if it's 1921 and you're on a one levy, and you cut it open, and, and you pour, you stimulate its vagus nerve, which slows the heart down, and then you pour, uh, you pour a solution over the heart, and he collected that solution. And as I mentioned, I think uh, in 2606, the solution, of course, was purple Kool-Aid. Most people don't know that. It was safe. And then he had another heart. When I say poured on a second heart, that second heart was attached to a second frog that was also still alive. Slayed off like this. Again, it's a different time. It's a different time. We don't do things like this anymore. 
And of course, it slowed that heart down. See, because everybody knew it was electrical. That had been figured out a long time ago. That was figured out Galvani. Another frog experiment. This goes way back. But Galvani, the guy that, you know, galvanic skin response. Uh, Galvani had a thing where he hooked up a frog's leg up to a lightning rod. Now, that frog's leg so is lying there, and then lightning, and it <laughs> moved. People know it's electrical, but they're like, it can't be just electrical. Right? Because you don't get a shock when you cut somebody. Seriously, think about it. So it's got to also be chemical. Um, how's that work? And Levy's done something very smart here. He's collected the, what he thinks is the, 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 the stuff. This, um, well, today we call it a neurotransmitter. <coughs> he called it Vegastoff because it's German, and I've established over the years in many classes that the Germans only have four words, and they just put them all together. It's a language of compound words, which is actually kind of great, you know. It's, but they don't, like, today we call that acetylcholine, and I'm pretty sure they call it that in German, too. But the idea that he went, I remember what I would call it, I would call it Vegastoff. <coughs> Yeah, that's just the Vegas stuff that we use that, you know. That's what he did. And this is where I like to point out that German doesn't have a word for glove. The German word for glove is Handschuh. It's handshoe. They couldn't come up with a word. Because some guy invented gloves, whoever he was, oh, I don't know, some guy named Dieter first German to make gloves. Yeah, my name is Dieter and I make gloves. But the gloves really like little shoes for your hand. Okay, we'll call them hand shoes. I don't know why I'm talking like that. I don't know who that German character I'm doing is. He's an interesting fellow. And uh, yeah, yeah, they don't have, so Vegas stuff makes sense, right? The stuff, Vegas stuff, you know what else are you call it? That's a good name. My favorite one is that they don't have a word for tank. You know, in German, you know, tanks like battle tanks. We, the name in English, tank, it's called that because when they were developing tanks in World War I, it was actually done by the Navy. And they needed to talk about it in secrets. So they called them tanks because they said they were water tanks. So if the Germans ever got a hold of anything, it says water tanks. Um, in German, they got a name for it. And the German name for a tank is a Panzerkampfwagen means an armored battle car. But they have a word for taking pleasure in other people's misfortune, which is schadenfreude. Anyway, so he later stimulated another heart that sped it up, and he did the same thing, of course. And he ended up with another sped up heart, and we call that epinephrine. Or as I guess von Levy probably called it, speeding something see ha! But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Liquid hot medicine or something like that. <laughs> but uh, so he made, finds epinephrine, which we call it epinephrine. Sometimes you hear it called adrenaline. Usually when it's uh, in the bloodstream, it's a Okay. So the thing is, why am I telling you about this? I'm not just padding no time, though maybe a little. <laughs> Mostly I'm telling you this because we think about if we had drugs that just could pretend to be neurotransmitters. They get the same effects as those neurotransmitters, except it wouldn't be caused by other neurons, they'd be caused by you taking some drug. 
right? And a lot of, you know, almost all the communication neurons are doing is chemical. There's some electrical communication, but we don't even have to worry about that. It's to the point where it doesn't matter in this course. But as you know, that there is electrical communication, but the chemical is the vast majority of it. And that, think about it, what drugs are, they're just other chemicals that are coming. They take place. Right? Oh, excuse me. So between axons and dendrites, between two neurons are these gaps that neurotransmitters release across, and those gaps are called synapses. And synapse is just a Greek word. It just, it's just a Greek word for gap. It's a Greek word for gap. It doesn't, so when anybody says synaptic gap, it drives me insane. Right? It's like, it's like when people say, I forgot my pin number. Did you forget that the N in pin stood for a number you have with? <laughs> ATM, machine. ATM machine's a good one. CD disc. Then those BBD discs, Blu-ray discs. Blu-ray discs, okay. 4K Ultra HD disc. <laughs> yeah, we didn't go that far. But BBD disc, the D in the second D is disc! <laughs> you don't have to see. HIV virus, well, the human immunodeficiency efficiency virus, virus? <laughs> You're being stupid. <laughs> Synaptic gap. Another one is uh, foveal pit. There's a fo the fovea in your eye. Fovea is a Latin word. You know what it means? It means pit. So you're saying the pit pit. Chai tea is a good one. That's another classic. It's like people are like, well, it's a different language, so I better translate that just in case you don't know. I don't understand people. Anyway. So sometimes if all the transmitters are released in the next, next neuron, it's taken back up to the original neuron, that's called reuptake. Now think about how powerful, what if we could do something to stop reuptake, make reuptake work better? Think about how we could change the neural, or change the uh, concentration of different neurotransmitters in your nervous system by taking a bell. There's a lot of things that stop reuptake of neurotransmitters that are drugs. We can, I bet even, I bet you could name something right now that does that. Yeah, everybody on SSRIs, everybody thinks yes. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. What do they do? They inhibit reuptake of serotonin. They literally tell you what they do in their name. The name tells you how the drug works. Please look. So when it says it's taken back up, yeah. What is that like? What would that look like? I don't have a slide here, but the way it looks is that a transport protein grabs onto the, a neurotransmitter molecule and it pulls it back up into the other neuron. Like something else, something literally does physically grab it. So like the one that it was like, like if it's going to a more certain place, it'll go backwards? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because remember, when, it, when, when transmitters released, it's not like released, like, it's not like the neuron goes and blows it on the next one. It's not like holding a power. Yeah. And every vesicle that, like, you know, neuron, uh, neurotransmitters are floating around vesicles in a neuron, every vesicle holds between 110 and 140 maybe neurotransmitter molecules. So it's always going to be too much. Almost always going to be too much. So it gets taken back up. Your nervous system is very efficient. It has to be efficient. Your brain uses, like, it's the most important 
When your brain's gone, you're gone. It's where, that's where you live, is up here. So this is most, you know, 75% of your glucose and 25% of your oxygen, or the other way around, I can never remember which way it is. It's one of those two. It is 75 and 25, it is glucose and oxygen. I just never remember which goes with which. So you can see here that we can have a drug, a drug effects at, or drug, yeah, drug, let's call it drug effects. Drug effects at the synapse affecting reuptake. And we talked with SSRIs, there's all kinds of others too. There's dopamine reuptake inhibitors. There's a very popular selective dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It's called cocaine, for example. So here's a couple synapse diagrams. There's a lot of variation. Some are inhibitory and some are excitatory. So some synapses, when uh, the neurotransmitter is released from, from the first neuron, goes to the second one and makes the second one fire. Sometimes released from the first one makes the second one less likely to fire. That's an inhibitory. And that's not working on sodium, that one works on chlorine. It makes things a little more negative. Right, so we talked about that in 2606 last time around. All right. Now, a lot of people talk about maybe it's due to the shape, the inhibitory, excitatory thing, probably has something to do with it. GABA synapses are, are, are inhibitory always. GABA is a neurotransmitter. Um, and they're always inhibitory. And there's something about their shape compared to excitatory neurotransmitters. They have uh, less postsynaptic thickening. The membrane isn't as thick as it is in excitatory neurotransmitters. Glutamate synapses have more thickening and more vesicles. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It's the most common neurotransmitter in your brain. I get a real kick out of people who say they're allergic to MSG. I find it funny because that means they're also, because that's, you know what MSG is? It's a really weak bond between a sodium and a glutamate. And free glutamate is delicious. It's in tomatoes, it's in uh, Parmesan cheese, it's in soy sauce, fish sauce. It's delicious. We have taste receptors for glutamate. We have MSG taste receptors. If you're allergic to glutamate, you're allergic to your own brain. So you're not, is what I'm saying. You're not allergic to MSG. Cook with MSG, it's delicious. I need MSG milk, we're out now. There are seven types of synapses. Seven types of, elect of, of chemical synapses. There's one electrical synapse. So the thing is, we only are going to care about in this course what are called axonidrate synapses. There's a bunch of others we have to worry about. Six numbers. There are, however, seven. Seven is the magic number in all of neuroscience. No one knows why. Seven steps of neurotransmission. The nice thing about this is, oh, this makes a nice test question. I'm not saying this is a test question. It's not made up any tests yet. What I'm saying is, this could make up a nice test question. Because what are the seven stages of neuro nervous transmission, and how could drugs affect five of them? So the first thing that happens is synthesis. So I'm going to go through them first, and then we'll see if we can, as a group, figure out what 
some things how drugs can affect it. So synthesis is making the neurotransmitter from proteins. So a lot of the neurotransmitter we get, we get from food. It's just broken down and, you know. But sometimes we, we, we also make our own. Then there's storage. Uh, they're stored in vesicles, these, these little bubbles surrounded by, that are basically made of cell membrane. They're then released. They interact with the receptor. They get inactivated in the next neuron. If they have been activated in the next neuron, they get taken back up to the original neuron, so it's reuptake. And then eventually degradation. So if they don't get taken back up, they don't, well, don't get taken up into any neuron, enzymes come along. So let's go through some of these and see if we can come up with a hypothetical. You have to be, that'd be a real drug, but let's sort of think like, let's think like a drug, basically. How would we, what would we do at the synthesis stage? What would we do at the synthesis stage? What do you think? Anybody, any thoughts? What kind of drug at the synthesis stage to affect nerve? Any thoughts? At the synthesis stage, when, the, when you're making your neurotransmitter, see anybody? Yeah, please. Like maybe a signal is generated, like not the Signal is generated to do what? I like what you're saying. I just want to make it be more specific. Um, a signal is generated to like to produce, to produce what? To produce the neurotransmitter. Okay. Right. So maybe you just—it's basically telling the genetic program that makes the protein makes something that simple. Just make one. Yeah, that's good. That's good. What else? What's another possibility? Still that synthesis, making the stuff. You got an idea, John? So um, what, do, what, what does the de degradation? Oh, so you want to know what that means? It's just yes. breaking down. Yes. Yeah. So what, at the synthesis stage, because I have another possibility. What if we gave you, oh, you got an idea. Maybe block the neuron from getting the component. Very nice. Yeah, that's good. Very nice. I wasn't even thinking of that. That's a great idea. So this is the idea of making it so that the neuron doesn't get the, the component parts. Something makes the neuron out of exactly. Or you can go the other way. I was thinking the other way, which was, what if we had a precursor to the drug? What if we had a drug like I don't know? Well, what if we had a disorder like Parkinson's disease, which is what? It's not enough dopamine, right? So we can't just give people dopamine because dopamine won't cross the blood-brain barrier, but we can give them levodopa or levodopa. And this is basically giving the, neuro, giving the nervous system, here's, all the, here's most of it, some, some dopamine almost already made. You just gotta do one little thing to it. Right. By the way, it's L-dopa, and I write that out and make a point of that because I on a test when I was your age as an undergrad wrote this. El Dope. And the TA who was marking it wrote, Dave, it is not the name of a matador. It is a precursor dope. Which I thought was very funny and I didn't take that as a big, oh, he's being mean to me. He was being funny. But I thought it was good. <laughs> you like that one, John? That's good. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that at home today. Go ahead.
that when you hear your mom later? So she yep. like that. She won't like that. No, she might like that. She likes physical company. Um, storage. What would, oh, gee, I don't know. Can you think of any for storage? Because I, I never can, but if you can. Anybody think of anything where a drug could affect the storage part? Because I've always had trouble with this one. I can't think of anything that would like make it store more. I don't think you could do that. No, nah, oh, you got, oh, you got one. Maybe you could go in the opposite <coughs> ways to releases more or something? Yeah, I thought about that. But releases more, there can't, there's not going to ever be more than the amount that was normally in a vesicle. <coughs> so, could make it fire more. Yeah, I guess. That's kind of like that. Release, though. That's, I think we all know what that one's going to be, which is just going to be release more. Or just release good firing. Most kinds of speed, so amphetamine, methamphetamine, methylphenidrate, all these things. One of the things that they do is they cause spontaneous leakage of neurotransmitter. So basically, the neurotransmitter goes, oh, no, no, here, here's oh, the neurons, like, here's some more. I know I'm not firing, but here's some more. Right, so that releases, you get that, that transmitter leakage, and you can see how that would be stimulating because you have more neurotransmitter flowing through you. And Receptor interaction, well, this is my, I've got one I can think of, but see if you've got anything yet. What, what could happen at the receptor interaction stage? What could a drug do? Speed it up. Speed it up how? Any thoughts? What else? That's good. That's good. Block the receptor. Block the receptor. Block the receptor. Block the receptor. Or you could. Could the postsynaptic thickening do anything? So you, the drug would change the anatomy of the cell level? So it could take, it could block, or what about if you had a, a drug that just looks just like a neurotransmitter? Like all the opiates, <laughs> how they work? Yeah? Yeah, so the storage, it goes in the vesicles. Yeah, that's right, storage in the vesicles. So release, uh, sorry, so receptor interaction either Take up the space in the lock zone, but don't open the door, don't open, don't open the uh, ion channel, or even better, just be like a neurotransmitter. Like it's basically like mimicking. All you have to do is have the key part fit, eh? The lock and key idea. The other thing you could do is, I mean, I can think of a couple here. Uh, like I said, all the opiates work like that. LSD works like that. You're basically just taking serotonin. Just lots of it. A lot of hallucinogenic drugs are just basically taking way too much of something that's very similar to a neurotransmitter. Yes? So how does naloxone work? How does naloxone work? What naloxone does is it, it, it takes up the binding site, uh, it interacts with the binding site of a receptor for an opiate, but it doesn't open the ion channel. So it, and by analogy, it'd be like taking a piece of gum, 
chewing it up and sticking it in, sticking it in a lock. You can't open the door now, but the lock is it's full. It's that kind of yeah. Also causes firing. Uh, naloxone doesn't cause any firing. Okay. Yeah, naloxone just shuts everything down. It takes up the space. And I mean, they're serotonin-like. It's not like LSD isn't serotonin. Yeah. Yeah, it's serotonin-esque. <laughs> if there's a way to. Let's see, reception reaction. Inactivation, eh, I can't really think anything there. Reuptake, we've already talked about. Reuptake inhibitors, speed A, serotonin, dopamine, whatever. Degradation, really, frankly, anything that's just, uh, that's gonna break down the drug before it gets to another neuron, um, that'd be great. So there are, there are drugs like that. So you can see that the synapse is where a lot of this stuff's gonna happen. Because these are all steps in neurotransmission that all lead to something happening at the synapse. The synapse is where most of the interesting drug effects that we are ever going to talk about in this class happen. All right. So we're going to talk quickly about some of the neurotransmitters. So we have to meet five different conditions before we call something a neurotransmitter. Uh, is it present in the terminal of neurons? Yes, that's a neurotransmitter. Is it released on firing of the neurotransmitter? Yes. If we place the substance on an organ or on another neuron, does it emulate firing? Um, does it get taken up into the next neuron for, to be uh, inactivated? And if you inactivate it, does it block stimulation? If all those things are true, then you say something's a neurotransmitter. A lot of times you'll see in papers and stuff, people will say suspected neurotransmitter, putative neurotransmitter, because all these conditions have to be met. Okay. All 
you're president of the terminal, you might be in there up right <laughs> You acting like an American president. No, I was doing the old bad Jeff Boxford impression. Oh. <laughs> thought you would have got that because of culture stuff. Uh, right, so here's a few that we'll talk about in the course. Um, Cetylcholine, this first one was discovered. Uh, not a lot of drugs affect Cetylcholine that are, we find interesting. Um, some do. Cetylcholine is important in movement. The big ones we're going to talk about here are the monoamines. So the catecholamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. By the way, these are the ones that leak out of neurons when you take stimulants. Uh, then there's the indolamine, which is serotonin, or 5-HT. Another monoamine is histamine, which you've heard offer antihistamines. In fact, one of the first drugs that was developed for <coughs> treating schizophrenia was antihistamine. By the way, isn't it great that people know about, or, you know, people, I think it's great that people learn things and know things. That's my job. I think it's wonderful. However, the whole world seems to think now it understands nervous systems. You just got to get that dopamine hit. But anybody <laughs> says that, punch them in the face and say it's from me. It drives me bad. Well, they're just trying to get your dopamine from the clicks. Shut up. <laughs> By the way, this is why at home, sometimes you say, are you okay, dad? That's why I'm, that's why I'm reading Reddit. <sighs> you sound stupid when you say, anyway. I just don't understand. I hate, I hate people so much. <laughs> it's so refreshing now and then when you see somebody say, I'm not entirely sure about this, you really? Uh, amino acids, so glutamate, we talked about the universally excitatory. It's called that because it's the most common excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA, the universally inhibitory neurotransmitter, called that because it's the most common inhibitory neurotransmitter. We're going to hear a lot about GABA. Because GABA is important in, uh, let's see, it's alcohol, uh, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, they all work on the same set of receptors. And then things like uh, peptides, like substance P. That's a good name. Why did they call it substance P? Because it's the neurotransmitter that sends pain magnetic signals. And for years, people figured there must be a neurotransmitter that just sends pain signals. But no one could find it. But they said, we got to give this thing that we haven't found, but it must exist in name. Let's call it substance P. And then they found it, and then people said, well, what are we going to name it? They said, well, we called it substance P for like the last 20 years. Let's keep calling it substance P. And the name stuck. It's too bad Vegas stuff didn't stick. So it didn't, but substance P did. So good. And finally, there's a couple, uh, these are ones that we hear a lot about, endorphins and encaphalins. Um, for our purposes, we can think of them as being roughly the same thing. Those are the first um, drug-like neurotransmitters that were discovered. They were discovered in the early, early 1980s. Um, the receptors for them were discovered in the early 1980s. Everybody knew there must be receptors for opiates because it was basically a one-to-one -one relationship for the amount you took to 
to the effect it would have. Uh, it just acted just like a neurotransmitter. So it's pretty clear they're neurotransmitters. But you gotta understand this, as I said, if there are receptors for something, we make those things already. We just don't make them in the giant quantities that usually the plants that make them as some kind of defense mechanism. Okay. Oh, there's some other peptides there. Uh, what do I have up there? Oh, yeah. Uh, insulin, prolactin, the growth hormone. Yeah. We're not going to, those aren't going to come up. Endorphins and caffeines will come up. Dopamine certainly will. Serotonin certainly will. Uh, some choline will. Sure. All right. So transmitters bind to receptors like a lock and a key. And if you're a biology student, you know about the lock and key idea of enzymes, same sort of idea here. Um, and if you're not, well, you've all taken 2606, so you should know this, but basically I like to think of a receptor site as of being like a door and the binding site being like the lock. Uh, the, 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 the neurotransmitter is the key and the door is an ion channel. I, I think of it that way, and that's a, for me a really good analogy. It helps me understand how this works. So I have a binding site and an ion channel. And typically one neuron has one type of neurotransmitter. And sometimes they can have others. But it'll only release one column. They all only release one. But they might have different kinds of synapses, like different, synap different neurons synapsing onto them. And again, this is a wonderful place, as we just talked about, for drug interaction. end this one up, um, our nervous system is made up of the central nervous system, the brain, the spinal column, the cerebellum, the perfer peripheral nervous system, which is the rest, right? So all the, all the, all the neurons that allow you to move around and feel things. And then there's finally the autonomic nervous system, which is, com which is hormonal. Uh, this is the fight or flight response, sympathetic, parasympathetic. This one's much slower. This one takes on the order of minute, uh, many, many seconds to work, whereas your central nervous system works very quickly. It seems like it's instantaneous, it's not, but it seems instantaneous, whereas your autonomic nervous system may take a minute or two. You know, it's like when you react to a really intense situation, if you've ever been in a, uh, if you've ever been in a close call in a car accident, that's, the, you know, or something like that, and you're fine, and about 20 seconds afterwards, your mouth's all dry and the world gets really bright because your pupils are dilated, your heart beats fast. Because that's, that's your, your nervous system has detected a threat, it's already passed. See, in our evolutionary history, we didn't have car accidents. <laughs> so there were very few things that worked like that. So like working hormonally and taking a few seconds isn't a big deal. But if you do have something like a near, near miss on the road, the best thing to do is actually pull over and just calm down. Because even if, oh, I'm fine right now, you won't be fine in 20 seconds. Uh, we, this happened, I think I've told this story before, it happened to us in the car once, and we almost got hit. My wife avoided an oncoming 18-wheeler. And we were all like, whew, and I said, pull over, please. And she said, what? I said, pull over. You're going to get, feel something very intense in a moment. Please pull over. And she did, and then she went, oh my god. <laughs> and then after 10, you know, 10, not even 10 minutes, five minutes, she was fine. But 
And that's just a physiological reaction. There's nothing you can, you can't stop that. You can't stop that. What am I, I once used this power for good. I saw, I was, I was in a car accident, I saw it, and these kids, they were like 16 years old. And the poor kid, she was screaming and crying. It wasn't her, she was just really upset. And she said, but what I'm so upset. I said, it's okay, it's okay, you're gonna be fine. This is a natural reaction you're having. And she looked at me and said, oh, I'm a psychologist. I didn't say, not the kind you're thinking of. She said, really? I said, yeah, yeah, everything's going to be fine. My dad's going to kill me. I said, no, he's not. He's going to be happy in your life. He's not going to be happy about the car, but he's going to be fine right now. I'm a dad. You're going to be okay. And I'm a psychologist. Believe me. I keep thinking, however kind you do. Uh, questions before we wrap it up? We went a little long last time, so. So, um, so the brain is part of the spinal column. No, the central nervous system. Yeah, the central nervous system, along with the spinal column, the yeah. cerebellum. Yeah. Other questions. All right, I will see you guys on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. Zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI you're all gonna die screaming. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't wanna nitpick, Tom, but is this really? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay for now But someday you'll be out of food and guns And you'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff but Tom that's what I do and I plan on eating you slowly all we want to do is eat your brains we're not unreasonable I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes all we want to do is eat your brains we're at an impasse here maybe we should compromise
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. And then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>